Let's talk about the future of news. I want you all to know that we are fighting the fake news. The state of journalism today. Telling both sides of a, of a controversial story. I think you must be unbiased. It's uh, honesty, fairness, uh, truth. That is our job. That is our job. That is our job. Welcome once again to the Arab Man in Stockholm podcast. My name is Philip O'Connor. I haven't mentioned it in quite some time, but I'd like you to remember that this is a listener-supported podcast. You can support it and indeed all the other podcasts that I do by going to patreon.com forward slash Arab Man in Stockholm and becoming a monthly supporter. And needless to say, I think it'd be a very good idea if you did that. Now, on to the subject of writing. Gene Fowler once said that writing is easy. You only need to stare at a blank piece of paper until drops of blood form on your forehead. Despite these less than encouraging words, many of us, me included, have decided to dance with that particular devil in the past. Another Irish journalist turned writer is Irish crime correspondent Michael O'Toole, known to most of us as Mick, and on Twitter as Mick the Hack. He has spent decades as a correspondent for a variety of tabloid newspapers reporting on some of the worst crimes imaginable in Ireland. Mick has spent several years writing his first novel, Black Light, which was published earlier this month, and I wanted to get him on the podcast to find out what it was that drove him to put his words on paper. His book is both dark and extremely compelling and has received rich praise for its realism and attention to detail. There we go. There's always a danger with the, these things, Mick, where we started, we do all the good stuff offline or oh, off the record as we do it. So I had to press record very quickly there in case we got into it. We're going to get into the book Black Light in a second. Okay. But just to present uh, yourself to people, you've been a crime reporter for as long as I can remember, which at my yes. advanced age is not very long. What was it that got you into specifically reporting on crime and often very violent crime, Mick? Uh, so I grew up in Belfast, as you can tell by my accent, and I was born in 1970. And I was just saying this to somebody, I was on Virgin Media here yesterday, I was just saying, and I hadn't even remembered this myself. I remember when I was about eight or nine, we, we were from Ardoin in North Belfast, right? And I remember we used to, we, we moved away, we would go back every Sunday for Mass, right? And I remember leaving Mass one day and there was a TV crew at the back, because remember the big boomer, yeah. you know, the microphone? The microphone, yeah. What, what the hell is that, right? And there was just sort of an acceptance of journalism up there, which I, in the North, which is very... People are, and even when I was in, in Queensland, Donegal earlier this week for the, the tragedy there, there's just something about people in Ulster, all nine counties who seem to have an acceptance in journalism. But anyway, look, so I get into, I was I, growing up in the troubles, you watch the news every day, mm. right? And I was, when I was about 12, I watched, I was staying up late, probably shouldn't have stayed up, it was a wee bit late. And my brother, older brothers were watching a movie, all, a movie, all the President's Men, right? Mm. And I, I went, Oh, which is about Watergate, and you know, all that Woodward and Bernstein. Mm. And I sort of, I probably should, I, I was like, oh, I, I like the look of this. And I found it intriguing. And from then, from the age of 12, I knew I wanted to be a, a journalist, right? And then well, when I got into crime, so I, 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 I did languages at college because when I was 17, I went on work experience to the Irish Independent Office in Belfast. And the fella, Dominic Cunningham, actually said, if you want to be a journalist, do languages. Now, I was lucky that languages were the only thing I was good at in school. I was terrible at maths. But I get into it, and I did languages, did a postgraduate course, and then get into journalism. And why I get into crime, I think crime reporting is the purest form of journalism, and I'll tell you why. Um, my job involves me talking to people who don't want to talk to me, okay? Mm. So either guards, criminals, soldiers, whatever. Guards 
aren't allowed to talk to me. They can get sacked and they can be jailed. Same for soldiers. They can be investigated for breaking the official secrets act. Criminals, you know, are criminals. And some of my best contacts, there's one contact I have who's a criminal. I've known him for 20 years and he's fantastic, right? And some of my other contacts, I did a book before with John Mooney, another journalist on the real IRA in the early noughties. And that was involved me speaking to very, 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 very senior dissident Republicans. And so there was a danger for them talking to me as well. So I remember a couple of years ago, I was walking down near Grafton Street in Dublin and I saw this well-known journalist and a TD walking down the road together, right? They're having a a chat. And I laughed my head off because when I go anywhere near a contact of mine, you wouldn't, if you were walking with me and a contact walked past me, you wouldn't know because I ignore them. I blank them. I I have a wee trick. If there's a guard with with a contact of mine and he's walking towards me with a pal to avoid anything, I bend down and tie my shoelace just so I don't have to make any contact. So it's very hard. Everybody, for some Probably it's it's our own fault, Philip, I'll be honest. Uh, people think that crime reporters go up to Garda headquarters at half nine every Monday. We get our stories for the day and we get a wee pat in the head and we walk away. Mm. Right. So I have a very, and I think we all should. I've, I mean, you may remember I was banned from a, a massive uh, press conference by the guards about the Kenhan cartel. I was only yes. announced the thing. I was banned from that. I, 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 no problem. You have, we, that was sort of lifting the lid on the tensions that journalists have with press officers, which it should be. It's not my job. The Garda press officer is there to, I always say this to people, the Garda press officer is there to represent the guards. I'm not. So we have rows all the time, and I've had loads of rows with various Garda press officers. But you have a respect for each other, but you you do butt heads, and every journalist I know butts heads Mm. with the Garda press officer, because that's his job. He has to defend the protection, the reputation of the guards. So, look, I became a crime journalist because, to be honest, I'm fascinated by the why. Yeah. Right. Violence appalls me. See, when I was in school, right? Remember fights in school? Yeah. I would always walk away and I always get a, a sick feeling in my stomach. I know that sadly there are an awful lot of people who are really obsessed with violence. And I think they're, I don't know if like it's the right word, but like, oh, what did he do to her or what did he do to him? Right. All that stuff sickens me. But what really interests me is the why. Why would somebody do what they do? Mm. So that's why I'm a journalist, really, to explain. Mm-hmm. Could I just dial it back a little bit? There? Why specifically did the, the Garda press officers, the Irish police force, didn't want you at one of the biggest uh, press conferences to do with one of the biggest criminal gangs in Europe and they excluded you? Did they ever say it's because this article you wrote or because you called me this? Or Oh, no, I, I know exactly why. Um, there was an embargoed press release. So the, the I think it was on a Tuesday. I think there was a big press conference planned on a Tuesday at Dublin Castle. The Americans, were, the American ambassador mm. was there. Garda Commission was there. All the, we call them scrambled eggs. People who have all the stuff on their shoulders, the braid. They yeah. were all there. And they sent out a press notice saying, effectively, there's a big press conference on Tuesday, but we're not telling you what it's about. Right. So I looked at this and I went, okay, there's an embargo. And there was an embargo on it, right? There's an embargo on a press conference, but they didn't tell us what it was about, right? So in my 30 years experience as a journalist, I respect embargoes, but you tell you what it is. So if you say to me, listen, Mick O'Toole is going to be arrested at half two tomorrow. There's an embargo on it and it's an agreed embargo. You don't go anywhere near it, right? Mm-hmm. But they but they, they put this press statement, said, we've got a big jazz hand statement on Tuesday, but don't do anything about it. Don't ask anybody about it. So for me, it was a red right to bull. Right? Exactly. Yeah. So, I mean, what sort of journalist would sit there and go, oh, something big happening on Tuesday. They're not telling us what it is. 
So I'll just leave it. Let's just I, wait I, for that. Let's see how that turns out. <laughs> so I decided not to leave it. So we put it on the front page on the Monday and they went balloons. That was grand. Look, you know, uh, as I say, we have rows all the time. So, you know, look, I have no problem with the Garda Press officers and the Garda Press office. I, you know, they've got integrity and they're they're doing their job. I'm doing mine. But we're, you know, in a democracy, this is the whole thing. We're supposed to have rows because mm. they want their uh, agenda and I've got a different agenda. So, I mean, I've no problem. And look, everything's fine now. We all had our chats and everything's grand. But look, it was just, you know, people have all, my med, my fellow media professionals, God love them, have this skewed uh, vision of how crime reporters get on with guarded the, the, the depot guarded headquarters right they, they basically think that you're in their pocket mick and uh, when oh, i say yeah, you yeah, i mean yeah. you plural all the crime reporters oh, you go around yeah, with a yeah, pack yeah. and you get handed yeah. press release and you print that verbatim and you never ask any of your own questions yeah and and you know i, I mean and, and i'm sort of glad it happened because look i i get very very little my interactions with the guarded press office are me putting questions to them right yeah. the guarded press office don't ring up and say, I've got a great story for you. It, it just doesn't happen. So it's me. I can show you all the que all the queries. I put in a query every day. Is it true that, you know, like say, for example, I, I did a story about a Garda who was arrested for allegedly being high on cocaine and crashing his car, right? I can tell you the Garda press office didn't ring up with that. I rang the, I sent an email into the Garda press office and said, right here, is this true? And they give me a statement saying, you know, whatever it is. But so look, we get our, and I remember years ago, a Garda press officer, uh, someone in the Garda press office, not the Garda press officer, but someone attached to it was saying to me, Jesus, if you're coming to us for information, you're in trouble. The Garda press office, the guards realize, you know, we get most of our information from the outside. And that's, that's the way it is. So I was sort of glad in a way that, you know, people knew about that row because you have private rows. And this was a public row because I tweeted about it and, you know, all mm. this sort of stuff, right? And it sort of, it shone a light on the reality, mm. right? So look, I, we, I'm supposed to have rows with press officers. Yeah. Every journalist is supposed to have rows because that they're gatekeepers. They don't work for me. They work for the Garda Commissioner or they work for the minister or they work for Mary Lou MacDonald or whoever, right? Yeah. You have rows with them because they have information and we want it. Mm. So, I mean, for me, it's a good thing. Look, you know, this clientelism, right? I, I remember years ago, I'm going off a real tangent, Philip, but I'm going to rant. I remember Walk years away. ago when I was doing the, in my previous job, I was Dublin correspondent for the Irish News in Belfast. And it was at a great time because it was at the peace process. So it was mm. 97 to 2000. So I was in uh, government buildings in Dublin Castle all the time. And, you know, Tony Blair was there one day uh, and we, we were there. And uh, Alistair, Alistair, what do you call, Alistair Campbell was there as his press spokesperson. And it was really funny for me looking at the interaction because all the British journalists were hovering around him and there was an air of sort of sycophancy about yeah. this. Right. And I was going, ah, here, hold on a minute. So look, all I can say is uh, the crime reporters I know, all of them, including Paul Reynolds, who's a bet noir for uh, certain people. Reynolds asks the hardest questions of any journalist I know, because mm. I know, because I, I go to the same press conferences. Mm. And for me, it's a dream because I just hold out my dictaphone and he asks all the hard questions, which mm. is brilliant. Right. So, you know, he, he, I think Reynolds is a fantastic. I mean, I can remember. Remember Alan Shatter was minister? That's right. I can That's remember the, the rouse and, and the, the, the tension between Reynolds when he was asking questions on behalf of us, I suppose, and mm. Shatter down at Temple, the Garda College in Templemore, the training college. It was great crack. Reynolds was doing his job. So, look, we do have rouse, but they're mostly private.
Mm. So that's why I was sort of glad that people saw a bit of the reality. Well, that's the thing. I mean, the other thing that people don't really seem to understand at times, Mick, is that you would almost very seldom would you ask a question that you don't already know the answer to. And when yes. you go to the guard at the press office and you say, is this true? You fucking know it's true. You just need uh, yes. to get their side of the story. You know, I, I, I need their side of the story, but I also need to satisfy myself. And it would be remiss of me not to put it to them. Yes. So the vast majority of times when I'm asking them something, it's not for... Uh, asking for information it's for an official line on it so i can say mm. not at the bottom of the story because you know a guard spokesman declined to comment i was burned this is in-house journalism stuff philip but i was burned years ago i did a story and i think it was the, P uh, the nruc when i was working in belfast and i put the ruc declined to comment at the bottom and the sub-editor took it out right so it looked as if I hadn't gone to the RUC for a comment. So ever since then, I always put it in the third or fourth paragraph so it can't be cut out. Because you know yeah, exactly. it's a cut from the bottom. Exactly. Right? So, so, anyway, so, that, so yes, you're quite right. When I put it to the Garda Press office, most of the time... I know already, and I'm just looking if they if they would wish to make any comment. Well, it is that thing. It's like you know, it's you're looking for verification, not information. It happened to me a few mm. years ago when uh, the Social Democrats in Ireland had asked me if I'd consider running for them for Europe, and a journalist that we both know contacted me, and he said to me, you know, is there any truth in this? And I basically did what everybody does in that, and I just played the straight bat. Nothing had been decided, and then he put in the article that I refused to deny something, which I thought, well, <sighs> I didn't. I just didn't answer your question. You know, no, that's no offense to that chap. I wouldn't have done it. You may not have done it. He no. did it. That's the way he chose to go but come here to me um tell me about the book right because the right. book is not just you had an idea you decided to write a book there was a very sort of specific purpose to you writing that book because you felt that the way crime is depicted in fiction and in particular the way the police are depicted in fiction as we've been talking about here is not it's not all that accurate so where did the idea come from because i think it was linked to a specific case that you started well, the book uh, black light on yeah there, there were two sort of inciting incidents realistically about this. Now, firstly, I always wanted to be a writer. Most journalists do, right? We always start off and go, ah, I'll be a writer one day. So, but it was just, you know, I always wanted to do it. So there were two incidents effectively. One led me to form the character of the of the main character who's a detective sergeant in the guards called John Lazarus. Okay. And he would be a, a sex crimes investigator. So that characterization goes back to 2008. I was uh, with Jim Walpole, a photographer colleague of mine in the star. We went over to Interpol in Lyon, in France, to interview a detective sergeant in the guards who was on secondment to Interpol. And he was a man called uh, Detective Sergeant McMoran. He's quite well known in Ireland beforehand because he was involved uh, in the first major Garda investigation into what is legally called child pornography, but I call it child sexual abuse material. Mm -hmm. That was Operation Amethyst in 2002. He's very famous. 100 houses and properties were searched and there were a lot of high profile people who were either prosecuted or convicted or went to the courts. Anyway, so it was it was pretty top, hot, hot news. So Sergeant Moran then was seconded to Interpol when he he became an assistant director in charge of child protection. So he was doing the same thing online, hunting predators and pedophiles. And there was one case uh, of a, a man who German police had this uh, sort of technology. The man had videoed himself abusing kids, but he had swirled his face to hide his identity and he'd put the pictures up online so you could see the child being abused and his mm. body, but his face was swirled. They used to call him Swirly Man. Mm. And Mick Moran with the German police developed technology to unswirl his face and they put out an appeal and he was found, a guy called Christopher Neal, a comedian fella, 
he was done for abusing lots of kids in it's either Thailand or Cambodia. And then he's been done several times since. So it's a big international case. So we went over to interview him about his job as a child protection, you know, online child protection expert. And I was interviewing him and he was giving us, you know, it was a really good interview. But I noticed at one stage he had a wee bookshelf over on the left and there were these outsized headphones on it. Right. And just in, I don't know why, but just something made me ask him. And I said, why, why have you got those big earphones there and he went oh that's when i'm for when i'm watching videos that nobody else can hear the screams of the children or the babies that was 2008 and that chilled me to the bone and then he he, i we actually took a photograph and you can see he's he you know he's pointing out he's got a a computer with two screens on and he's pointing out things on the computer now we had to pixelate the picture of the screens because there was child abuse material on that. Now there were there were thumbnails you couldn't really, and I, I, mm. I tried not to look, but that was you know he was that's what he was has to be asked to show us. So that always stuck with me. So that was two thousand and eight, and I always knew I wanted to that uh, form a character on basically how does a guard or a police officer in any uh, jurisdiction cope, or what's the rationale or their characterization behind a police officer really diving into the darkness because. Some of the things that Sergeant Warren and, and other colleagues have seen really do make the hair stand up. And it's the worst of the worst abuse of children. Mm. There, there's there's a, a, a level, it's one to five, and five would be effectively torture, right? Mm. And one of his jobs was to create images and videos from one to five. So level one could be maybe a, just a picture of a child in underwear, right? So that mm. there's various grades of it. So he deals with level five stuff and the worst and the worst of the worst of the of the, the stuff. And I was always fascinated about how do police officers who have to live in that world, how do they cope? And that's where effectively that started the story. And I, I you know, he is a in my it's a guy called John Lazarus. He's a he's a damaged police officer and you know he volunteered to join a section because his own sister was kidnapped and murdered and you know he couldn't protect her so you know he's vicariously trying to protect all the other women and all the other kids mm. in, in in ireland so that, that was that but there was another inciting incident that made me write it so i started writing the book in late 2015 and look i have to be honest the reason why i did that eventually what forced me to get up off the seat and go over and start typing up was 2015 in ireland there was a very big trial of a man called graham dwyer you may remember it i remember he it. was a, so you know it, it convulsed the whole country basically and you know he was eventually convicted of the the murder of a lady called uh, a lady called Elaine O'Hara who was quite a vulnerable lady and he he I think I mean you know there was evidence he had effectively groomed her for murder and he had this fascination with murder and what really got to me was he was a middle-class man he was an architect living in Fox Rock and leafy south literally leafy south Dublin nice detached house family married couple of kids he had a slightly goofy hobby of being a model aircraft enthusiast. He flew model aircraft, right? Mm. And then he had this third life where he was a sexual sadist and he kept kept it secret. And I sat five feet away from him for the whole trial. And what really got to me was I was just, I was repelled by him, but I was fascinated at the same time because how could this man compartmentalize his life so much? Right. Mm. You and I Philip, probably have a thing called moral injury. Right. So say if you're driving down the road and you hit a cat, you'd probably be upset for the day. You'd, even years later, go, I can't believe I killed a cat. That's moral injury. Right. Mm. Um, he had the opposite of it, which is a complete lack of empathy. He lured that woman to her death. He groomed her for murder. And 
I could not get over the fact that he was just a normal person. And the reason I call the book Black Light, Black Light is what the guards and police call, you know, ultraviolet light. So they can they use it at crime scenes to look for blood or semen or saliva, that sort of stuff that the normal light can't see and at night. But I, I, I developed the idea of black light and Lazarus talks about black light in the book that he thinks there's a darkness in some people, which is, you know, want to call it a lack of empathy or a lack of love or or whatever. But the darkness has won out in some people. And I think the darkness won out in Grimdor. Mm. And that's why I call it that. It's, was it a difficult book to write, Mick? Because there's one thing when you're sitting there. I mean, the Grand Wire thing I recognise because I was uh, I was there outside the court today. Anders Benning Breivik, who murdered mm. uh, so many people in in Oslo and Utøya, and th- th- again, that's that's a case that ever since the, then in 2011, I've read everything, I've seen everything, I've spoken to victims, I've spoken to people who shot, I've spoken to families of people uh, whose children were murdered by him. And to a certain extent, there's a fascination for me. Like, he'd be my Graham Dwyer, right? Because he was such an ordinary, fucking pointless loser guy who made a few quid, lost a few quid. And, that, you know, and it is it is that that search for understanding of, the, mm. of this person. In, in your work and putting the book together, fiction is different from journalism because we can decide what the facts are. Because, you know, it's yes. not, it's based in reality, but that's the story that we're trying to tell. Did you find that difficult? Because... In writing a very compelling novel like the one that you've written, you have to go to those dark places yourself. You have to look back on the notes from Graham Dwyer. You have to look mm-hmm. into the things that people have told you. And you and I know, and I know because we've spoken offline about them before, about crimes that have happened that nobody has ever been brought to justice for. How much of that do you bear with you when you sit down to write a book like Blacklight? Right. I've decided, doing interviews about this book, that we're not the story right it's, this is a, a, a it's really hard for non-journalists to understand that you and i aren't the story but this isn't about a, a, sto- a story i've written so i've decided to be completely honest when anybody asks me these questions if i've been completely honest with you philip there's a darkness in me and there's a blackness in me not i would hope not evil but sadness because it, it comes i've seen so many things right and i think that has made me a sadder per you know i've got a great life i've got a great wife I've got a great family i've got great friends i love my job but you know i've i've covered 800 homicides probably another 700 drownings bar deaths road crashes plane crashes right that's an awful lot of people to bring with me right and it does affect you so i think you know i sort of liken it to a photograph so the photograph is dark around the edges. And I think that has happened to me because of what I've covered and, and what I've seen. So, yes. Now, it wasn't hard for me to write. The, so, in other words, look, say if a, if a non-crime journalist started researching and delving into the world, they would probably be, be more upset and more shocked. This is my normal. Mm. I've covered countless child sex abuse material cases. Countless. I I, I, I remember once... I was talking to another guard, not Mick Moore, uh, uh, quite a, a polit- well, you know, someone in the public eye was uh, done for child abuse material. And I was talking to a guard involved in it, about it, outside the court. And I said, you asked the question that you wanted to ask, how bad was it? And he went, here. And he showed me it. And it was horrendous. And it was like, that was a 10 second thing, right? On another occasion, it, it was, look, we were we were in Interpol and under control conditions. We were uh, playing a video. Now, uh, I closed my eyes. Right, like 
but you can't, you know, make talks about the, the earphones. Mm. There were no earphones, so I heard it. So even talking to you now, I can still hear the screams. And that was 15 years ago, right? So look, I can understand if an author who is, is researching this would find it very, well, I find it upsetting, but it would be, you know, sort of like being hit by a train. Mm. But for, unfortunately, this is my life. I write about this stuff every day. And, you know, you know, non-journalists, when they read the paper, say a court case of an abuse case or whatever, they can flick the page, but the journalists and the guards and the court staff, they're in the, they're in the, and they hear it. So I've sort of absorbed all this, right? Now, I think it's good news that it's affected me because imagine if it didn't affect me, imagine what sort of person I would be. So this is sort of, I think every journalist, if they've been totally honest with themselves, I'm not just talking crime reporters. You've seen things, you've you, like even the Otoya, you know, you saw things that probably aren't in the public domain and you know things that probably aren't in the domain. And, you know, we have to be honest with this. I think it does changes and I think it does damages. And for me, it it has my, my career, although it's challenging or more than, it has made my world darker. One of the things you've received a lot of praise for is how real your book is in terms of the process, right? Because an awful lot of the time, and I suppose everybody who doesn't write about crime is guilty of this, people don't actually know what the, the nuts and bolts of an investigation looks like, nor do they know what the people are like behind it. Because like, you have a situation where, you know, people have seen the things that you have seen and people have seen the things that, you know, uh, ambulance drivers and uh, people who work for the fire brigade and the, and the police have seen. And that's their everyday thing, you know, so there is a sort of a hardness sometimes to the way that, you know, the deceased is the deceased. The deceased has ceased being a person is now evidence, you know, um, mm. what, what that was an important thing to you, right? You really wanted to get across. This is how the whole thing actually works. It, you know, it, yes, um, I wanted authenticity. Now, there's a difference between uh, for me, there's a difference between authenticity and, you know, total realism. If you want to read total realism, go and read a nonfiction book, right? Mm. Now, I'd say for my attitude, you know, in, in writing, people talk about character arcs. So, like, I mean, my character, uh, Lazarus, there's he has a character arc. So I'm not going to spoil things, but he starts off in one position in his life. And at the end, he, it's changed. I would consider, consider change for the better, okay? Now, I started off writing this book going, this book is going to be the ultimate police procedural. It's going to have everything in it. And it's going to, people are going to be in the room. I, I, I had, I researched what's in a Garda superintendent's office. Mm. Uh, I researched what I had a, actually had a real Garda station in it for the whole time until the end when I got legal advice. And that's why most Garda stations and police stations in fiction are fictional because people can go, well, that's me, right? So I had to doubt, but what I, I th essentially, I realized halfway through, look, it's about the story. So I want this story to be as realistic as possible, but it's a piece of fiction. It's in my, it's from my head now. So I did have it say hundred percent real. I dialed it back a bit because it started to get in the way of the story. But what is important to me is that, um, particularly with police officers, guards, they would look at it and go, he's nailed it, right? Within, there's a, a degree of tolerance. And I'll tell you, I mean, I was one guard is reading it and he just messaged me and he said, you know far too much about the guards. And that was one of the best things that anybody could say to me, right? Because look, I mean, I, I, I do read not a lot of Irish crime fiction and it's quite surprising. You know, I read one the other week and they had the rank structure wrong. Now that's pretty basic, right? Now, 
two years ago, I would have been going up the walls about that. That's an outrage against writing. But I decided, look, it's a piece of fiction. And if that sells, and if that person is happy to write it, and if people are happy to read it, let them add it. For me, I wanted authenticity, right? Mm. So I got as close as I can to the reality. And look, I every what I can say is when I was writing the book, I would look at every paragraph and go, is this realistic and is this authentic, right? There's a lot of journalism in the book, uh, a lot of crime journalism in the book. And I can tell you, well, well, there's a couple of twists, but all the things that happen to that journalism journalist normally happen to me, right? Mm. So at the start of the book, uh, he had there, there's two journalists and they have a row with guards at a crime scene, right? And it's all about who told you this and stuff. I was that soldier. Most crime reporters that has happened to, I've been had rows with Jesus, all that sort of stuff, right? Then in another stage, uh, the journalist is in his newsroom and Lazarus goes in and has to find a leak and he questions him, who told you? That's me. That was, I didn't have to make that up. I have sat across from a cop like Lazarus 25 times in my life, mm. right? And we always do the, the way it works out. I always, we always say this. We always bring them in, give them a cup of tea. We go and get nice biscuits and we sit down and we chat and then he starts, he starts questioning and I go, no comment, right? Mm. And that's exactly what happens in the book. So that's my life as a crime reporter. And I know... As I said, from my perspective, I wanted guards to read this and say he's nailed it. And so I worked really hard at the procedural aspects of it. I, I knew a lot, but I had to find out an awful lot more just to make it because I didn't want any guard. And I go, I know, go, ah, Mickey got that wrong. Now, I wasn't tackled the one indulgence, right? And this is slightly anarchy. In Dublin, uh, there are guarded districts, right? Mm -hmm. And they're they're known as letters. So A district is Kevin Street in the city centre. B is Pier Street where Trinity is. Mm -hmm. C is Store Street where O'Connell Street is, right? So they call it, and the G is Crumlin, right? Mm -hmm. And M is Tala, right? All that sort of stuff, right? There's one, I had to create a fictional district. I called it Broadstone. I called it Y district. Now Y district actually does exist. And that's out in Balbriggan and Scarry's up near past the airport in North Dublin. But I decided to bring that in, to call it Y district because it's a play on words and why. Everything yeah. in this book is about why, right? Yeah. So that was my, my one indulgence. It changed a couple of very, very small things. There's a, a just, as I said, you have to fit in with the story. So uh, there's a scene at night where there's a senior officer on duty and that's a superintendent. Uh, that would be a patrol officer, which is an inspector. But I decided to make it a super because it had to fit in with the story. Yeah. But apart from that, any guard reading this and they have, they've said, Jesus, you're on the ball or two. So that was really important to me. And the same for journalism. Look, look, with sadness, I have to say this. I have never, I have rarely read an honest or decent or authentic or accurate portrayal of journalism in mm. fiction. I read one the other way. <laughs> oh my God. You know, everybody, every journalist seems to be a fella or a woman, mostly a fella, actually in fairness, who is a scumbag who, when people close the door, does the old trick of sticking a foot in the door, right? It's a crime. Be jailed if I did that. It's I don't know any journalist. Yeah. Exactly. I don't know any journalist who does that. And what really I, you know, so I would know most of the crime reporters in Dublin. And because I was writing fiction, I I, I asked them, I asked about maybe 10 of them, eight, and you know, reporters who work in crime, not just crime reporters. I said, Lads, has any author ever contacted you for technical advice about what a journalist does? Right. And of all of us, there were two. I was contacted once by Fair City. Mm. Right, which is a, a talk a, TV a program, soap yeah. opera in Ireland, right? Mm. And Conor Lally in the Irish Times was contacted by an English screenwriter or something looking for a bit of technical advice on something. 
Mm. Nobody else has ever asked any of us. And I find that really weird that you would want authenticity. It's amazing because like, I'm in the process of writing something myself where there is a character from that background because it's essential. Like you say, you know, you have to feed the stories. So you want to get these different things in there. And you're thinking about representations of journalists and it's absolutely, you know, it's horrific. But come here, there's one of the things I want to ask you, right? You're... Your bread and butter is quickly hearing something in a courtroom or hearing something from the guy. You, you put together stories, 400 mm. words, 600 words, 800 words, 1,000 words. You do it quickly. You do it clean. It's factually correct. Writing a novel is a different discipline, right? So you mentioned character arcs there. Mm. You mentioned servicing the story with authenticity. Did you find it difficult? Because we all think that we can write as journalists. We all have very fucking high opinions of ourselves as writers. But that's not the same thing as being able to write a novel, Nick. Philip, it was horrendous. And I'm going to be, again, I've decided when I'm asked the question, I'm going to be totally honest, right? I did one version of it and I thought I was the dog's bollocks, right? I, I wrote it 120,000 words. And the way it works, you probably know this, you have to send off the first three uh, chapters to an agent and the agent gets you a publisher. So I was so pompous. I wrote it and I read it. I went, this is fucking brilliant, right? Printed off, the, uh, I actually printed off the first three chapters and sent it to an agent in England. And I thought, this is the start of my career. I'm going to post it from the GPO for, you know, just to make it really authentic and stuff, right? And he came back after a week going, Michael, thanks for that. Nice idea. You're right like shit, right? <laughs> and I went, excuse me? Because you know what? This is really important, Philip. After about a month as a journalist, way back in 93, I knew I was good, right? I, I, you can tell, you know, I just knew I was a good journalist. I was good at writing. And since then, I've had a series of successes as a, as a writer. I've won four national awards. I've written four nonfiction books. I could write, I've written uh, 500 words in 10, in 10 minutes. No problem, right? Splashes, friends of mine would ring me for intros. Intros are very important as a journalist, right? Course, and yeah. especially as a tabloid reporter. And, you know, I give advice to younger journalists because the intro is all encompassing. It's the most important thing. And sometimes they don't get it, right? So that was the first knockback I'd had as a writer in any form. Mm -hmm. And it really, really affected me. So what I did was I put the book down, came back after six months, I, I and I realized it was shit, right? Mm -hmm. There was, he said, there's no characterization. You have no descriptions of characters. Uh, dialogue is poor. He demolished it, right? Mm -hmm. And he was completely right. So I had to learn all that stuff. Because say when you and I are writing a story, we don't sit there and go, you know, micro tool, five foot eight, five foot seven. Uh, chubby, grey, ginger hair going grey, blue eyes uh, and a nice wee smile. We don't do that in journalism right, because yeah. that's what pictures and photographs are for and, and videos, right? So uh, and, and I had this stupid thing in my head say when you're reading a book and I'm reading a book right, like say my favourite author is a guy called Michael Connolly, an American crime writer don't know if you've mm -hmm. ever read him, superb so his hero is a Harry Bosch, right? Now, when I'm reading a book, I have a picture in my head of Harry Bosch, which would be different from yours. So I decided in my naivety, I'm not going to make any descriptions of people. People can make up their own minds, right? And it was appalling. And I, to be also to be honest, right, um, I write as a tabloid writer, you have to be very economic and very tight. And I made my book, I was not embarrassed or ashamed, but I wanted to sort of, I have to show people I can write a different way. And I completely overrode it. The language is appalling. And I remember I sat down for a good six months and I read everything I could about the art of writing fiction. Mm. So, you know, uh, character arcs, descriptions, all that sort of stuff. And what really helped me, and I would give any, this advice to any writer or would-be writer, you and I, I can guarantee you, Philip, you and I are speed readers. Mm. You read a press release, 30 seconds, get to the bottom, right? And I, I'm like that when I read. Right. Mm -hmm. 
So you can't really take much in. So I started listening to audiobooks, yeah. right? Because I'm out for a walk and you pick up so many techniques and you go, oh, I like the way he's, what he's done there, right? And look, I don't know how, what, what's the word, who's literally acceptable or not, but there's this guy, Lee Child, you know, the Jack Reacher novels? Yes, I do. I always read them on airplanes, yeah. Right, okay. So now I don't know if people are dismissive because I'm not into it. I, look, a book's a book for me, right? Mm. And I, after I read various handbooks or guides about how to write fiction, I started re- listening to him, right? And I've never heard a writer who has better descriptive powers than, than Lee Child. I mean, it, it's amazing. You're mm. in the room, right? Yeah. And I, looking back, I mean, he he affected me. Say, for example, there's one scene where Lazarus is cooking. And I made it. He was cooking uh, carbonara because he's Italian. And I made it that you could smell the garlic. Yeah. In the book or another, he takes a cold beer. Right. And it's so cold, it burns his throat. Mm. And that's because of Lee Child, because of the descriptive powers of Lee Child. Yeah. So, look, in essence, Philip, I had to go away and learn how to write fiction. Yeah, it is. It's so an entirely different discipline. And like I say, like it's that kick in the teeth. I remember uh, I won't say who it was, but I remember about 20 years ago, somebody said, oh, this fellow's joined us. He's a great reporter, not a very good writer. But and I remember saying, fuck you because you know you're told from sort of national school all the way up ah you're very good you're very good keep yeah. going the pat in the head and then you realize oh, hang on a second like and it is it's i was also told it's a trade it's not a talent it's a trade it's a trade 100%. and you have to learn how to do it um the book is called black light it's out everywhere you can get books i'm sure there's an audio book version of it i have it on the kindle and i'm getting through it it's just it's a fantastic read the first time i sat down i think i lost half the day reading the first half of it you know uh, have you any plans to write any more books maker oh, no no, no. John Lazarus is a character. I'm working on book two at the minute. It's called Man of War. That's the provisional title for it. Super. That's so. Uh, and I have, I, I've so I've I've started working on that, and I have two more books in my head. So hopefully, when those four are done, I'll think of a few more ideas. But look, he is a good character, and there's plenty more to come from him. Well, hopefully uh, when those four books are done, you're up there with Lee Child in the airports that <laughs> you'll be travelling to and people are picking you off the shelves and you've made your millions and you can yes, sit there in your palatial mansion and just go, yeah, once upon a time I was a crime reporter, but I, I got over that, you know. <laughs> for now, Mick O'Toole, thanks, the world. Exactly, thanks so much for talking to me about the art of writing and indeed the art of crime reporting. Yeah.